0: At 11 years old, I hadn't made the decision to myself that I would just end my life. At that point, I just didn't feel I didn't belong at school. I didn't belong at home. I didn't belong in this world. I didn't like myself. I hated looking at myself in the mirror. Um, I hated who I was. This is probably one of the darkest or the darkest moments of my, of my life, uh, to date. My birth parents physically abused me, mentally abused me. Um, And sexually abused me. Now, I'd be in a fourth bedroom. I was really desperate and seeking some sort of comfort or support, love from my own brother. My my whole life at at this point, I just felt constant pain, constant turmoil. At that point in time, whether or not you're religious, to me, I think that life is very precious and, and it's a gift. And I was about to give that up.
1: All right, guys, thanks for tuning in. We have DK, Darius Kvevahy, here with us today. This story is so wild. Generally, guys, when we do our pre-calls, just to get to know the guest and do our research, these calls usually last 20 to 30 minutes. My call with Darius, DK, lasted 90 minutes and was only interrupted because of a pre-scheduled dinner. I was really fighting back the tears and the emotions that came with this story. And so guys, if if you are interested in understanding what a difficult beginning might look like and how to overcome that and how to build some unbelievable mindsets, then you are absolutely going to want to stay till the end of this. And so Darius, thank you so much for not only giving us your time, but opening up your world for the first time. And so if you don't mind getting us started, take us, A little bit into your real estate journey just give us a little glimpse and then we're going to obviously go into to your story
0: okay um hey aloha everyone um dk uh from uh, oahu hawaii and a little bit about my real estate story so it started off in 2018 so i'm active duty navy and i was getting stationed uh, back home in hawaii and my thought was because i'm moving back to hawaii i wanted to buy a property there and you know be able to keep it uh, for a few years and you know, as I progressed in my military career, I'd be able to rent it out. So that was kind of like my initial mindset. This was my first time home purchase. So I ended up buying a condo in the center part of Oahu in Mililani. And my condo was about 510000 And, you yeah, know, I ended up getting it uh, under contract after putting out an offer pretty much at asking. Uh, but during that time period in 2018, there was a, a ton of other people getting into that market. Uh, So some people are putting in cash offers. Some people are offering large down payments. Uh, But for me, being the military, this is my first tour uh, out of college. Um, I was like, well, I don't have a whole lot of money. I'm using the VA loan, so already my offer was pretty uh, weak compared to the other offers that were on the table. My realtor was like, hey, just press ahead. Uh, Maybe let's submit a you know personal statement for your offer to see how your how the uh, seller might kind of resonate with your story. You know, being from Hawaii, born and raised, you know, serving in the military and everything. So my offer actually ended up getting accepted to my surprise. Um, so I ended up closing on that property back in, this was about September of 2018. And so I kept this property up until late last year, I was getting ready to get stationed uh, here in Virginia. And my thought was because I'm going you know, to get moved out of Hawaii, you know, I'm going to rent this property out. And then, you know, my thought process was because now I'm not, you know, serving out on sea that I'm going to be working a more normal job. Uh, you know, what can I do to kind of set up my family for financial freedom and invest in something that's going to produce me good, stable cash flow. Uh So my thought process was, um, you know, the real estate market seems a great way to be able to kind of build generational income, provide good, you know, stable, passive, passive income as well. And so uh, I was talking with people I knew in Hawaii that, Uh, Are in real estate. You know, my good friend of mine from high school, he was a realtor. He was, you know, my realtor uh, back in 2018. And so I was like, hey, do you know people that kind of invest out of state um, and kind of build long term buy and hold properties, you know, rental properties? That's kind of what I was wanting to do. Uh, So he got me in touch with this group called WNN, why not now? Um, And, you know, I joined the mentorship program. And the thought there was, you know, I knew that I wanted to take action in something. I did not know the right steps to take, uh, but I knew I had this drive and I had a clear reason why, and you know what my kind of end goals were in the next five to ten years. Uh, so I got up, hooked up with this group, and initially I was going to just do residential up to uh, single family up to four uh, fourplex properties and kind of just do the classic Burr strategy. Um, and then earlier this year, I pivoted from residential to doing commercial. Um, I sold my condo I owned in Hawaii for about 680000 this year. And then I did a 1031 exchange to a commercial building worth about $1.1 $1. $1 in Kansas City. It's a uh, daycare single tenant, and that's kind of where I'm at right now. So I'm actually on track, hopefully, to, to lock up another property by the end of the year under contract. So that's a little recap, not a
2: whole lot of detail there. Wow, this is absolutely tremendous. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so you bought the condo, you sold the condo and you ten thirty-one that into a one one point one million dollar multifamily mm-hmm. in Kansas City. Uh, so how many units is that building in Kansas City? And what is the market value? Did you pay full market value or, or just kind of yeah, give me some? Uh, so there's a there. single
0: tenant, um, a daycare, and she's been there for about fifteen years at this point. And as part of the um loan or not the loan, the um contract contingency was i would buy this property at listing price if the tenant was going to you know sign a new lease right under my terms and it was advertised that she would you know sign a 5 year lease with two 5 year options uh so we kind of wrote that into our negotiations looked at the lease wrote up those terms and you know we were able to kind of close in less than 60 days
1: so you transitioned quickly into commercial. Can you tell us why you moved so quickly from residential to commercial?
0: Yep. Yeah. Uh so I started my mentorship program in November of last year. I was just actually my first call was when I first got stationary the day I was stepping off an airplane, checked into my hotel, and then I had my call uh with my mentor. And initially, uh, you know, I was had a goal this year that I wanted to go three to five doors residential, either single family or up to you know, multifamily like fourplex units. And during this process, between November to about February or March this year, I had my uh, condo that I owned in Hawaii. Um, you know, I was I was renting it out, and each month I was looking at it, and I was actually getting negative cash flow. So even though my rent uh, for the condo was well above exceeding my rent or my uh, mortgage for the property, Uh, it wasn't covering my homeowners association and, you know, some of the other maintenance fees and everything else I had to do uh, in order to maintain the property. So each month I'm looking at my my, you know, statements and I'm like, you know, see minus 500 here, like every month, it's just, it was getting painful at that point. And during this time period, I'm really learning how to analyze, uh, you know, residential uh, you know, properties and, and, and deals and you know i got to the point where it was taking me maybe an hour to analyze just one deal just because now i'm trying to figure out when i'm looking at a property right is it best for me to do updates to the kitchen maybe add a bathroom add bedrooms and like how do i calculate this right And kind of getting familiar with using the rehab calculators we had in our group uh to the point where i was kind of being able to look at a property and within five minutes to have a good rough amount of numbers to put out an offer price to my my real estate agents and it'll be putting out uh, offers almost every day. Um, so I got to the point where I was able to kind of streamline the process, really learn how to analyze Burr properties, get offers out to my my agents and and uh, kind of get things moving. Um, so I did, you know, at least over a hundred plus um, analyses of different properties between the month uh, November till about February, March time period. But during this time period, I was also talking to my mentor and I was, I was like, Hey, Jim, um every single month I'm looking at this and I'm just getting negative cash flow for my property owning Hawaii. And even though, you know, I bought it for about 500,000 in 2018 and right now it's probably worth, you know, at that point in time, probably low 600s. And I was like, you know, so I'm getting pretty good appreciation for the market in Hawaii. You know, the appreciation goes up like crazy there. And so I was like, I could keep it and continue to, utilize that appreciation eventually one day sell it or get a heloc on it or i could sell it now and you know kind of set myself up for for a different avenue uh so he said you know one of your midterm goals was to go commercial anyway um so why not you know use this opportunity maybe maybe you could get a heloc right now and see if you could use that to leverage into a a commercial property or into maybe a portfolio of single family houses or multiplexes or something like that. So I kind of looked into that. I called up a bunch of different lenders that offered HELOCs in Hawaii and, and national uh, products out there. Uh, but a lot of the appraisals came back and they were well below what I was expecting that they would be based on the actual market. Um, so I was getting appraisals coming back at, you know, maybe high 500 so like 580,000. I was like this doesn't make sense that you know i challenged it um because i saw that there was condos in the exact same complex that was selling for at that point in time like 630 maybe 640 so i was like you know my condo is the exact same layout the exact same square footage um and it was just kind of shocking to me that i was getting these much lower um appraisals they weren't like a full appraisal but it was kind of like their estimate on what my property value would be um so because of that, I was – I was the HELOC wasn't really a good option for me just because even if I took it out, it would be such a small amount I wouldn't be able to leverage a lot. Uh, so then I was like, all right, so now I'm down to the decision of either keep it and just eat the cash flow every month or sell it now and possibly just do a 1031 into you know, a different property. So yeah. I just gave myself one more month, and I was like, all right, let me just see how I feel between February and March. And if, you know, if I still have this same gut feeling where it's like I need to do something right now, then I'll I'll execute. So then March rolls around and I'm like, nope, I can't take this anymore. Like if my goal already, right, I had set what my passive income number would be in the next five years, I'm already starting negative and I still haven't picked up a property at this time either. So then I called up my property manager who also happened to be my realtor. I said, hey, give my... Tenant's 45-day uh, notice, I'm going to sell this property, and I'm, I'm going to do a 1031. Uh, so that's yeah. kind of where, where I started that exact shift of me selling the property where I shifted from residential to commercial. And the reason for that was because I had it as a maybe a year or two years into real estate as a goal of you know, eventually I'll kind of shift off residential and do commercial. And my whole reason is that I wanted my real estate journey to be very passive. So, I'll do up, the upfront work required in order to in order to acquire the property, so all the acquisition that takes place, stabilize the property and then from there, I cared more about receiving money that was very passive to me. I don't have to do a whole lot each month, you know, each week to kind of manage the property, right? It can kind of just operate on its own. I just receive the income and that way it it'll allow me to free up my time to focus on other areas of my life and other areas of businesses that I plan to operate in the future. Um, so understanding that and knowing that there's other avenues in real estate that can produce much more cash flow for the same, you know, price uh property. Where sometimes they got shiny object syndrome or, you know, if I'm buying a one million dollar commercial property, there's other people I know that buy lower price point residential properties that may do short-term rentals and that make much more in cash flow. But for me, you know, like I said, I, I just wanted the fact that if I can you know get a retail tenant in place and they sign a lease with me for 5 maybe 10 years you know then i don't i don't have to worry about the turnover and and all that and i have a great tenant that's in place you know that has uh, the terms where the rents are going to be rising each year uh so to me that's much easier to manage and i can scale very quickly uh based on that um so this opportunity for me to 1031 this property uh the next challenge came to be How do I raise the rest of the funds that's required to close on this uh, higher price point property? Because at the time when I was analyzing residential properties in Kansas City, the price points are very, very, very affordable uh, comparatively. Um, Given the same square footage house in Kansas City compared to Hawaii, you're looking at like maybe five to six times difference in price. and so when I was analyzing these re- residential places that are probably worth 130,000 ARV, uh, now I'm looking at a building that's worth a million. So it, it was a, a big jump for me to realize how much money I had to raise uh, through private money lenders uh, in order to kind of close on this kind of opportunity.
1: It's it's pretty incredible to see that you have so, like your path is so different than most. Like most that start in the residential stay there for a long time, myself included if they ever make it to commercial. In your first two deals you did of you know, a buy, you got appreciation, a 1031 exchange into commercial and raising capital on your first two deals. Like this is not normal. So, first of all, kudos to you for that vision. I want to take us into your story because the on-site looker uh, you know the audience might be like wow that's that's crazy enough but mm-hmm. to to know that you're doing this from how you know your your life and and how it went so take us take us through your journey like you know i know most of us when we talk about our journeys it's just like hey i was in this and i was in this and now i'm i'm in real estate but for you like this is going to be the focal point of this entire episode because that's where all mm-hmm. of the nuggets and the learning and the knowledge are so if you wouldn't mind, take us to the very beginning of, of your life and and take the audience through the journey, you know, the highlights and, and all of the feelings and emotions that you went through over these last, you know, you know, just up
0: until now. All right. So are you looking for like the complete end to end, like high level recap, or do you want to just kind of dive down from the start? I want
1: to dive down, like, just because like, just for the, you know, being on this pre-call with you. I was so impacted. Your story is so powerful that the audience being able to feel hopefully what I felt, the lessons hit home so deeply. Like I still – like I mean we had this pre-call several days ago. I'm still thinking about it. I'm still thinking about some of the lessons. Like, And like last night I was trying to get to sleep. And I like I couldn't sleep, fall asleep quickly because I'm thinking about the lesson. So I'm like super pumped for today. And I'm also like, dang it, like I, I've got to get to sleep. So I have, I have the energy for this podcast. So if it impacts the audience, like it impacted me, like, I think it's going to be great. So, I mean, you really gave me the story. So really give our audience the story like, like you gave it to me.
0: Okay. All right. Yes, yeah, the first time I'm ever sharing this story online in a super public forum. Uh, you know, even some people in my life don't even know like the full depths of my story. Uh, so this is an interesting experience for me to to do this. Um, and also on my social media, you'll see that I'm trying to rebrand. Uh, kind of the content that I bring out to kind of share more personal stories, so I can kind of connect with uh, my audience. Uh, so here goes. Uh, so my story starts off. Um, this is prior to the age of four. Um, my birth parents, mostly my birth father, uh, physically abused me, mentally abused me, um, and sexually abused me. Um, so my earliest memories are when I was probably two or three years old. I just remember, you know, I'd be in a dark bedroom and I just remember my dad coming over and I would just get abused for just no reason. and A lot of time I felt that maybe I was doing something wrong. I felt as if I was to blame. Um, but there's really no explanations for what was happening, uh, for why it was happening. Um, so I just remember, you know, a lot of those early moments of of being in that house, um, and just getting abused and then, you know, trying to reach out for help talking to my my mother at the time, um, about what was happening. And I just remember a lot of the time I was just getting pushed off as if like she was just unaware of what was happening uh so i fast forward a little bit up until i'm about the age of four i'm still living in my parents house um and i remember i was um you know waking up it's in the morning my parents would take uh, me to daycare and they would take my brother Um, i have an older brother who was born paralyzed from the waist down or from the neck down um, who was unable to talk who was fed through a, a tube um and so they would take me to daycare in the morning. They would take him to like a like a medical uh care facility. Um and so I woke up in the morning like any other normal day. You know, my parents are getting ready for work. I'm getting ready to go to daycare. Um and my father took my mother over to um her workplace and then so I was like, "Well, this is kind of weird that you know, I'm not going with them cuz typically I'd ride in the car with them in order to in order for her to get dropped off at work and then I would get dropped off at daycare. Uh but my father just took my mother to work like normal uh without me and my brother and then uh you know probably a few minutes passed I remember my father coming back in he's telling me to go to the shower and you know some very unexplainable very inhumane things were happening to me. Um, no, I I pretty much blacked out. Uh and I remember, you know, waking up later, I'm in daycare, and the daycare manager, you know, was kind of attending to me and she noticed that I had like a lot of bruises around me, you know, had uh, you know, fluids that were coming out of me, and she was like very concerned. Um, and I just remember this white car rolling up in front of the daycare, and this lady walks out in a pantsuit. Uh, which at the time I didn't know what that was as a kid, but uh, just saw someone looking very official, like someone you would see on like TV or something like that, coming out of the car and walking into the daycare. And there was like a muffled conversation in a, in a back room with the the daycare staff. Um, and at one point, this person that came out of the car beckoned over to me and told me to get in this car. And from there, I'm taken off into this random uh, building, uh, which turned out to be some sort of, you know medical facility and i'm just getting questioned by all these doctors and getting questioned by this lady that you know took me in the car um i had no idea what was going on there was people that were wanting to take samples of me and you know this was like hours of of just this grueling questioning and and kind of felt like i was like a a lab you know animal or something like that um <clears throat> so that lasted for a few hours and and then i remember going from there back into this car. And then I go to this random house, um, you know, that I've never been to before. And this lady was trying to tell me, she was like, hey, so uh, because of everything that was happening, you know, you're no longer going to live you know, in the house that you were. You're going to live here in this house with this family and these these kids. And, and, you know, these are the parents and, you know, the other adults that are going to take care of you. And for me, I'm four years old. I have no idea what's going on uh you know this is a a completely strange experience why am i not at the babysitter why am i not at my parents house like you know what's going on um all i knew was at that point in time i just felt you know completely confused uh you know i felt a lot of pain um i just had so many emotions that i just did not understand what was going on but uh you know i was put in this this uh this house of strange people had no idea who they were they didn't know who i was I didn't know why I was there. And yeah, I was there just with the clothes on my back. And and that was it. Um, And that was the first foster home that I, I got dropped off to that I found out later that it was a foster home. Uh, and this is so, this
1: just for clarity, this is when you're four mm-hmm. years old.
0: This is when I'm four years old. Yep. Okay. Uh, yeah, so my, my memories are pretty clear as day. I mean, I can, I can recall them just like that, just because the intensity of the emotions that I was feeling and the trauma that I was going through was, was very intense that I, I still remember it to this day.
1: Yeah, take us through. So you're in you're in this new home. You're four years mm-hmm. old. It's confusing. You don't understand it. And how does the story continue
0: from there? Yeah, so from there, uh, so I'm in this, this foster home. And, you know, just because of everything that was happening, I was required to go through therapy, which... Uh, essentially, when you're that young of an age, I mean, we don't we still have a a more difficult time expressing our emotions um, in words. Uh, so they call it play therapy, where you know the ther- you'll come into the therapist's office and you'll kind of do you know you'll play games, you'll you'll draw, you'll do you'll do things that they're able to kind of interact with the child and they're you know, have an easier time connecting with them. Uh, so, I was required to go through therapy uh just because of what was happening, and I just remember uh you know trying to get along with the other siblings in the house uh just because for me, like I said, I had an older brother in the in my parents' house, and I got separated from him' uh you know I was that was removed removed from the home and put into foster care and now i'm in a in a foster home that has i think at the time when I first got there, there was probably six foster kids. Um and we we varied in age, so I was one of the youngest at four, and there were some that were in middle school to high school ages and then at some point, because it was a foster home, you know there's a trickle in of kids that would flow into the house and flow out for different lengths of time, maybe a few weeks, a few months, a year or two um and you know throughout this time, I'm also going to a new uh, school which at the time I, I went to a daycare before and then now I'm starting preschool as well around this time four or five years mm-hmm. old um, and I'm also getting told that on top of therapy I, I didn't tell you this story before on our pre-call um, but during this time period because of the um, abuse that I suffered I had to go through like a legal hearing Right. So they have to prep you for about a year or so just to kind of go through this process. Uh, so, one, I'm dealing with like the emotions of like, what the heck just happened to me? Why did it happen? What did I do wrong? And now I'm being told that I have to go in front of a judge and testify. Um, so, I have about a year of prep where they're collecting evidence. You know, I, I get called into an office for questioning and have to recount um, everything that was happening, you know, over those uh, few years. Um, and then I remember I was probably about six years old. Um, I get led into a courtroom and I'm told to sit on the stand next to the judge, uh, you know, to raise my right hand and, and have to swear that I'm gonna tell the truth. And, you know, they have me recount my entire story, uh, from what was happening, you know, before I was four years old up into that specific day that put me into foster care. And at one point I remember the judge kind of pointing over. Uh, into the crowd and asked me uh can you identify your father the one that had uh, done these abuses to you and because of everything that happened my mind physically like removes the image of my father all i knew when i was like in therapy trying to describe him was a shadowy figure i could not recognize the face i didn't know his, his name um and i couldn't point him out in front of the crowd um And I remember later on, because I was so nervous with everything that was happening and the fact that I had to talk to all these strangers in this courtroom of my story because there was also a live jury there, uh, I went to a bathroom and I threw up. I just, I couldn't, I couldn't handle this. I was sixth grade, uh, you know, uh, or not six, six years old uh, in first grade dealing with this uh, you know, having to go to court to testify against my own father. I mean, that's, that's pretty wild. I mean, I knew at the time that this wasn't a normal thing to happen, but because for me, that was my reality, this was my normal. Um, and so I just remember, you know, the fact that I had to deal with that. Um, you know, we ended up winning the case because there was so much evidence that happened. Uh, so they told me uh, after the court hearing that my father was going to be put away uh, for the next 15 years or until I turned 21, which, whichever came first, just depending on where it kind of landed around my birthday. Um, and that was that. That was my last memory of my my birth father. Um, and I remember trying to go up to my birth mother later, um, asking her, like, hey, do you forgive me for what happened? Um, and I just got nothing. She just didn't know what to say. And that was the last time I had seen her in person, actually. Um, oh and so... After that happened, so that was like a pre- pretty significant shift in my life for me. The fact that, you know, all the abuse I suffered from my my parents, um, culminated to that courtroom where you know I, my father was put away in prison, and then I'm living in this foster home and I'm trying to get along with uh, the, the foster mother that's taking care of us. She didn't have a husband, but she lived with both of her parents. Um, but so the, between the three of them, they helped take care of the kids that were living there. Uh, so there's a, there's times where, you know, maybe there's 10 of us living in this house, 12 of us living in the house, six, you know, it kind of fluctuated from month to month, year to year that I was living there. Before, and, before we go into this mm-hmm.
1: phase, yep. can you go a little bit deeper into the conversation? So, I mean, cause this is something that obviously is, is fresh for me. Um, so you, you testify, Um, the conviction happens and then you have a conversation with your mom and you're asking for forgiveness, which is just nuts. And, and she's just, she's not responding. So like, how how was that? Like, what was your interpretation? Like, what were you feeling in that moment? Was it like, like a, a desperation or
0: Oh sorry, I haven't haven't told this part of my story in so many years. Um uh, uh, so during this time period, I mean, I felt as if I was really pleading out because I was I was trying to you know, a lot of the time I just I grew up feeling like I was to blame for everything, right? I mean, why would someone do something to someone else, you know, um, know, like, you know, why would you abuse them, right? Maybe I, I'm the one that did something wrong to cause them to be angry at me or to cause them to dislike me. Uh, So during this time period where I'm in the court, after the courtroom, I just was asking her, you know, am I the one to blame for the fact that my father was abusing me and the fact that now he's in prison, right? Because I felt, that I was definitely to blame that he's in prison because we're in court because of me. um, And she just did not know how to respond to that. And I I didn't mention this before, but some of these therapy sessions that I would go to, they required my birth mother to be there as well. um, And so I, there was a few times between when I was four to six years old that she would be, you know, at my therapy sessions. um, And so I would, I would see her a little bit every now and then. Uh, but a lot of the times you know we didn't really connect, and I couldn't get a lot of responses uh, from her, but during this um, day of the courtroom, I was really desperate and, and seeking some sort of comfort or support love from my own birth mother um, because there were several times, like I said, when I was uh, living in their in their house and I was trying to reach out for help because you know i was I was getting physically abused, you know nearly every day. And there was no way for me to express that. I was, I was a very quiet kid um, prior to four years old because of what was happening. Um, I later found out from my grandparents, actually, when I first got to meet them um, that, you know, they just remember me being very, very quiet, very shy because um, they could obviously tell I felt very um, scared or cowardly around my father um, but they had no idea the extent of everything that was happening until I was in foster care years, years later. Um, so, wild.
1: But... so, yeah, and this is such a new wrinkle in the story. So you're somewhat regularly seeing your mom after you've been separated from the family. Did Is your take on it now, is it one where essentially your mom was like, dead inside was it something where like you feel like she had loved your dad so much that she became ultimately loyal and then like could not handle the fact he, you know was it just something that was bigger than she was or looking back at it now with your with your age and and some of the time distance like how would you describe what she was like cuz not making a connection i'm assuming is more her than than you is that fair because it sounds like you were really wanting it you were really reaching out for it Mm -hmm. uh
0: i would definitely say it was more her than than me and more so she probably just didn't understand what to do um i didn't really get a whole lot of emotions from her and even i mean i also did not mention this but i have a birth sister um we're seven years apart she's younger than i am so she wasn't born until after i was several years into foster care um, I didn't find out that I had a birth sister until sometime in middle school after I was already adopted. Um, so I even talk to my sister nowadays um, and I can recount how we will be reconnected. Um, but she even says that she has a hard time ever talking about anything from the past. My sister has no idea really what happened to me um, or what happened um, in in general with, with everything. Uh, we were both born to the same parents. Um, and so... Reflecting back, I think she probably internally is struggling with how would she even cope with something like this, and how would she even have helped the situation. So wait, you said you were
1: both up. born to the same parents?
0: Both born to the same parents. So she was. So your sister is
1: seven up. years younger.
0: Seven years younger. Yep.
1: And your dad, so, who got locked away, fathered your sister as well.
0: He is her biological father but like i said he was in prison um or his sentence was until i was 21 years old or until 15 years was the the time period um so at one point i guess he was allowed to be out for i don't know god knows what reason and they had my sister and then he was still serving the rest of his sentence until my 20 my 21st birthday
1: so your mom wasn't finished with him even
0: after everything that happened? Uh, yes, that's that's correct. Whoa. Whoa, so, whoa, whoa, whoa. I know at some point later on down the line, they, probably, they got a divorce or something, but I don't know the details. I mean, like I said, my last contact with her in person was when I was six years old after the courtroom. I've not seen her since then. This is – yeah, this is –
1: yeah can keep keep going so take us into the foster care situation and and start start uh from there
0: all right uh so you know, after the uh courtroom so I was about six years old um so kind of fast forwarding until i'm probably about eight or nine years old and I'm in about i think the first half of third grade i just remember a specific day i had a very bad argument with my uh, foster mother in this house i don't know what we're arguing about i just remember the emotions that were were being felt on both sides um i guess she was pretty disappointed in in something that i was doing or saying and i you know still learning how to deal with the emotions that i was feeling i didn't know how to express them in, in the most positive of ways um you know i was being fairly disrespectful and arguing back and that's really because I was kind of speaking out a lot of the emotions that I was feeling. Um, and at one point, she was saying that she just wanted to not have foster kids anymore. And she just couldn't handle taking care of them. She can't take on anymore. And that I was more than likely probably going to have to move. Um, to me, this felt like it was going to be in, the, in this sort of near to distant future. Uh, so I remember walking off to elementary school, like an, any normal day just the fact that i got yelled at i got slapped in the face and things were thrown at me and i'm coming back home from school that day and i'm turning the corner and i just see a pile of my stuff on the porch a car that's waiting with the same random lady which i later found out that's my social worker so as i got older i learned what these terms were uh so my social worker's there and i'm talking to her i'm like hey why is my stuff here and why 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 are you here And she said, you're moving foster homes. I was shocked. I was like, what is happening? I had an argument with her earlier this morning, and now I'm moving. Like, there, there was a big disconnect. And on top of that, there was another car that was there with a different person and a set of younger kids than me that were moving into the house. And I was being moved out. So now I get told in the morning that she couldn't handle taking on any more foster kids, that I had to move eventually um, because, you know, she, at that point, you know, we fluctuated between 10 to 12 to maybe six. So at this point, we probably had about five or six of us that I was being told to be moved out. And now she's bringing in two more. So I just, I don't know what to feel at this point. You know, I, I felt, again, I felt I was to blame. Maybe there's something wrong with me. You know, maybe... I don't, you know, connect well with this family, um, and so I just get in this car with all my stuff, and I'm moved off to a different part of the island, and I'm at a new foster home. You know, I show up to this house, um, and you now I'm told. And now, now you're
1: about eight at this point. Is
0: that fair to say? About eight, maybe nine years old. It's okay. sometimes third gradish. Yeah, third grade. So I just finished the first half of third grade at this point. Yeah, keep going. All right. So in this uh, in this new uh, foster home at the time, there was probably five or six other uh, siblings. So at this point, we're all around, let's see, elementary school up to I think the oldest ones were in middle school um so yeah like i said at this time it's about five or six of us and so now one i have this thought of all right so i just moved from my uh previous foster home and i lived there for about four almost five years now i'm at this foster home so my thought process is all right when am i going to get moved out of this house right because i'm already having distrust of other people um rejected from my own parents right for things that i feel is my fault i'm rejected from this first foster home for things that i also feel is my fault right you know maybe there's something wrong with me and now i'm going to this new new home that i have no idea how long i'm going to be there um you know adoption was like the furthest thing from my mind and now i'm starting at a new school in the middle of the year Uh, so a lot of um changes are kind of happening in my life at this time period um, so I remember uh, getting to this home and I just broke down one night. I'm sharing a bedroom with another um, foster sibling at this time. And for some reason I, I couldn't explain it, but I just remember breaking down and, and crying just because I was feeling so many emotions at that point. I just didn't uh, understand how um, to express it. Um, and then I felt really embarrassed and ashamed because I have this other uh, you know a foster brother in my in in the same room as me um that could hear me and i just I felt shamed but i couldn't help and control it because it, you know these were uncontrollable emotions kind of just pouring out all at once um and that was kind of like the initial start of being in this foster home uh and then you know again in this foster home there's a lot of children that come in and out for various reasons you know some some of them are very, very temporary, where it's maybe a few weeks or a few months. So at some points uh, during this uh, house, I remember it also going up to about 12, I think 15 at one point. Um, and the house that we lived in was like an old plantation house in Hawaii. So if you kind of look that up, it's like a very, very old looking house. Our house was probably nearly 100 years old at this point. Um, and it was only about one. So a five-bedroom house um, and two bathrooms. And if you have, you know, 10, 15 kids living in there all at once, I mean, that's kind of a lot to, to take in. And so it would be like that for a few weeks at a time. But most of the time, we probably sat around six to eight uh, kids in the house, you know, plus our parents um, that were taking care of us. Um, and then I'm going to a new elementary school, trying to learn how to be making new friends, you know, um and kind of dealing with those kind of difficulties it's hard enough i think going to a new school as a new kid um but i'm also a new family member in this other person's house right this other family that lives there uh so i just feel like a stranger at home i feel like a stranger at school and also i got uh changed to a different therapist as well so the therapist that i knew from when i was four years old up until now i'm like eight nine years old um I have to change to a different therapist that works with the family that I'm living with now. Uh so there's you know, all this turmoil that's happening in my life, there's no stability other than the stability in the sense that I'm my emotional state um and all the um I guess mental connections that I'm trying to make are are constantly in flux. Um so I guess so, that was like my sense of stability.
1: Yeah, and to dive into that a little bit, so mm-hmm. You don't have the ties to your parents at this point. You don't have the ties. You're moving homes. Did you have something? I mean, you mentioned your emotional state, but did you have something that you would anchor to to get you through this? Like, Was there anything constant, whether it be thoughts or anything that that was giving you strength?
0: During this time period, I would say probably not at this earliest part of my life um uh, even in even the fact that i was going to therapy just going to therapy doesn't help right um you could just go there and sit there for the hour and then nothing gets talked about or discussed and then you just leave and that's kind of what i did the first few years sort of just there i would say maybe a few words play the games or whatever with my therapist but there was not a whole lot of actually pulling out of the emotions i was feeling i was i actually was able to build a good skill which is not not the greatest of skills but um where i could harbor my emotions in and i looked like any other normal kid at school i was bubbly very friendly um and that was just kind of my way of, of dealing with it right? i just forced myself to look happy and 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 feel like I was a normal kid just like anyone else that has their families I also thought it was normal for people to just move families because that was my normal um you know later finding out that you know, my other friends and classmates at school live with their same parents and their same siblings in their same house uh, was foreign to me it was very strange um I think a lot during this time period I did play basketball so that was kind of one of my one things that kind of kept me wanting to do something that was positive um so i was really involved in basketball uh, from a very young age and one of my siblings in my new house this is my second foster home uh was also very into basketball so we would go down to the park and we played play basketball so that was like one thing i i got to look forward to in my day um i did end up really getting along with this family after being there for, you know, several months. Um, And, you know, we really, we we really connected with the core siblings that were there, the ones that stayed there for longer periods of time. Um, So I was able to create a a fairly good bond with them, but later on, um, and this was unknown to me at the time and unknown to my foster parents uh, that were, that were taking care of me at the time, my therapist that was my therapist in my first foster home uh, her and her husband they were probably middle-aged um, and they had no kids of their own um, and they had taken a pretty good liking to me uh, for some reason because they've known me for a while um, even to the point where after they were not my my therapist anymore um, you know they they would ask my parents if it's okay uh, for them to take me out uh, for a weekend and and go see a movie or go to a park or something um, so they kind of built like a rapport with me and rapport with my family. Um, but they did not know that behind their backs, they were going and taking uh, the classes and the certifications required to become legal guardians uh, so they could eventually adopt me. But no one knew at the time. Um, and it was about a year of me living in this, this foster home that I get told by my current therapist um, and they have my, my foster mother uh, in, the, in the room with me. Uh, saying that uh, we're going to have Darius get moved away into, you know, his previous therapist's home because she wants to legally adopt him. Uh, So my foster mother, she's completely shocked because she was like, this is out of nowhere. No one really talked to to us about this. Um, And at the end of the day, this should be his decision because he's the one that's moving, right? Um, and at the time, I just, I was like, I, I'm really getting to know my siblings here. You know, I started to sort of acclimate to my my, my new school and, and a lot of the classmates that I was meeting. Um, and so at this point in time, I'm in the first half of fourth grade. Um, but the decision was because they went through the classes and they have the, um, I guess, legal certifications that, there really was no choice up to me and they were just going to take me away from this home. Um, so I remember going back and I had to pack my things up. Uh, you know, I told my siblings, I, I'm leaving, I'm living in this different home. So I don't know if I'll, I'll see you guys again. Um, cause I, like I said, we, we really got the bond, uh, over that the course of that year. Um, so the compromise was that my, my, my new parents, I I'm going to say foster parents. I mean, I can explain why later. Um, they said, okay, since you're leaving in the middle of the school year for your fourth grade, um, and they live on the opposite side of the island, they said, we'll finish your school, um, here at the one you're going to, we'll drive each morning to take you to your school. And then once you complete that school, you're, you're going to get moved into a school of our choice. So I went with that compromise. I said, okay. Uh, so, you know, each day, you know, we'd wake up at four or five in the morning And i drive from the east side of the island all the way to the west side of the island to go to school. Um, But then I did not know until later that they also were, their caveat to that was when I'm finishing up my school uh, or fourth grade year in in my current school, that I was not allowed to talk to my previous siblings, not allowed to play basketball anymore. And I'm to go to school. When I'm done, I would meet them in the designated spot which also happened to be the same spot that my old siblings would uh, be at as well. But also I had to ignore them um, because they are are not worthy of your, your presence and, and of, of being in your life. Um, and I had no idea at the time like what that meant because to me, I'm like, we're all people um, at the end of the day. Um, but I guess they had this higher sense of who they wanted me to be uh this ideal child in their eyes and you know be someone that has like perfect grades and be someone that's gonna be you know kind of uh i don't know the treasure of their eye or or something um so it felt that they were like coming from like a very elite society or something and that's kind of what they were trying to mold me to um so when i finished up that fourth grade year then i just attended the school of their choice i was sent to a private school um and you know from there they really tried to mold me. They're like, all right, now you're gonna have to, uh, you know, you're not allowed to play basketball so you're gonna you're, you're required to play tennis because to them it, it was more of a proper sport. Uh, and then I was told that I had to play the flute, which I've never played the flute before. I never played musical instruments before in my life at this time time period, and you know I was also very isolated from. Uh, a lot of other people my age, uh, because at up to this point I was living in homes where there's a lot of other foster children that are there, um, and now in this home I'm the only child, and it's just uh the parents that are taking care of me and you know the animals that they had uh in the house you know they had a lot of pets, and so now yet again going to a new school this is fifth grade now and it's a private school. Um and up to up to this point I was going to public school. So now the demographic of the people that I'm meeting are are very different, completely different. These are families that are coming in with, you know, a lot of um, a lot more financial security, where the families that grew up in, you know, we were, you know, probably pinching for, for money, right? Uh finances were very, very tight in the houses that I lived in. Um and the fact that now I'm living with who used to be my therapist. So, this is a completely new dynamic for me. I just remember going to her office and we would attempt to talk about some of the painful things that happened to me. And now I'm expected to be their child. So, it was a very strange experience. Um, and the fact that I was just kind of ripped uh, from a family dynamic that I had established over the year to now completely, um, you know, being part of their household uh so already it created a lot of contention between us uh so from the start of me living there there was a lot of tension because um at this point i'm, I'm fifth grade so i'm probably 10 or 11 years old um so, do so you, I'm, a, I'm a lot do more do you feel aware.
1: do you feel judged by them because they know your past do you feel like because i get a sense from what you're saying that they wanted somebody different based on, you wanted to play basketball, but they wanted like an Ivy school league type child. So how did you feel through that? Like,
0: I felt that I was living in, trying to live up to expectations of someone that I I was not, right? Clearly I'm someone that has come from the past that I've come from, Uh, but I mean, at the time, I mean, college to me was like the furthest thing from my mind i i was barely struggling with trying to figure out how to deal with the emotions that i had um not to say that i was not doing well in school um part of the the ways that i coped with what was going on was to really pour myself into my studies um because it kind of um i i would say diluted the pain it was something for me to do um, so I actually really enjoyed being in school, um, but because there was so much turmoil with what was going on and, and the amount of schools that I, I went, I went through, I wasn't the best student. Um, I actually got into a lot of arguments and fights with teachers and other students. And, and again, that was just me not understanding how to deal with my emotions in a, in a more positive way. Um, you know, So I was very known for arguing back with teachers, throwing chairs and throwing pencils and random things, just, having outbursts uh, because, like I said, I used to hold my emotions in a lot. And then whenever they wanted to express, then I would just express in a very loud outburst of emotions. Um, And it even exasperated up to this point, uh, being in fifth grade and the changes that were happening. um, And so I, you know, constantly struggled in their household, trying to live up to the expectations that they had. Um, you know, I was expected to, you know, get perfect attendance, have perfect grades, right? If there's any any class that I was struggling in where maybe I happen to get uh, like a lower mark on a test or something, then I felt that I was judged for it to the point where I would hide my exams in my backpack and not show it to them. Or just say I lost it or my t- the teacher never um, handed it out. Um, and so... My because my class size was so small in this private school there was only 30 students in fifth grade so they could easily get a hold of the teacher and and they could easily find out how well i'm doing or not um <clears throat> so if there was maybe a field trip that i didn't feel like going to because i was like i i don't know what to do with all these other kids that you know they, they seem so much more intelligent than me and and now we're going to museums and we're expected to talk about these things in in very eloquent ways. And I, I don't know, I I barely know how to kind of keep up with everyone else. Um, So a lot of time I would, I would hide those things from them as well. So uh, because of this constant tension between my, my uh, foster parents that wanted to adopt me and and myself, um, you know, created a lot of turmoil in our household up until the point where, they told me this was probably <clears throat> um, around like maybe the fall uh, time period of of my fifth grade year. We were going on a student trip uh, to D.C. and to some of the other states on the East Coast. Um, and I remember them telling me right before the trip that they said, hey, so after we come back from this trip, um, you know, we need a, a minute to think about um You know our relationship together i I don't know if we're ready to be parents yet i don't know if we are able to adopt you but we're going to need some time to think about this uh and i was again questioning i'm I'm like you know weren't you the ones to kind of go through all this training and everything to say that you wanted to take care of me that you cared about me that you wanted to uh, be my parents and adopt me Um, because all I knew at that point was constant rejection and constantly having to move homes and always thinking about, you know, when I'm living in a home, how long am am I going to be there until, you know, I get the boot. Um, so this, you know, caused my, myself to close in again, because at this point I was, I was sort of opening up to the possibilities just because, um, kind of seeing how, um, I guess in, in, in the eyes of society, their their successful lives right they had a big house they had very high paying successful jobs they both went to college right so they're they're kind of like the societal norm of like this is this is the person that's made it in life right um and the reason why my previous foster mother um wasn't very contentious with the fact of of them adopting me because she knew the opportunities that they could provide uh for me for my future um which at the time I had to really come to terms with that because I felt that I was just being given up. Uh, but she later explained that to me. Um, and I could see you know, the potential if, if I were to be adopted by them, yes, I would probably be very set up in life. But because I'm getting molded to be this person that I'm not, right? I'm really trapping who I am inside um, and what I want to be. No one asked what I want to be when I grow up. Um, I was told, hey, you're going to go know to such and such school you're gonna do this when you grow up um so i felt that i really had to hold back who i was and what i wanted to become and and uh you know still kind of deal with the other uh emotions i was going through um so we get back from this uh trip around you know the east coast uh it was kind of like an american history tour around the east coast and i get um a suitcase of of some clothes and they said you're going to live with this other family for a week and you know we'll we'll take you back after and and we'll try to work through things right because you know like i said we were constantly in contention we constantly had arguments and everything um and i was being very rebellious at school i was also the new student there uh, this is a private school that's k through 12 and because it's fifth grade most of these students already knew each other for many years and i was just the other new kid and because the class size is so small it's not like i can hide among the crowd it's like oh you're darius and everyone already knows who i am and i don't know who anyone else is and so it was a very difficult situation so i get moved to this uh home during like the winter break time period um so i'm not missing school or anything and i'm living in this house uh, with this one lady who was the foster parent there And the other siblings that were living there are between the ages of like four years old down to like a one year old. And so I'm the oldest in this house. I'm about 10, 11 years old at this point. And, you know, I'm living there for a week and a week goes by. And I look at the doorstep and all my stuff is there on the doorstep. And my social worker comes out of the car. She said, hey, you're going to live here now. Um, I can't tell you how long this is going to be for. Um, But it looks like your previous uh, legal guardians don't want to take care of you anymore. They said that they have to figure out kind of their own uh, life situations. Um, I guess the excuse was that the previous legal guardians, they had to go and take care of like their mother and mother-in-law or something like that. So uh, some random excuse. I've I've heard it all at this point. Um, So So now I'm living in this home yeah i mean i I don't know what do you tell a child if the fact that like hey you're just gonna live here and i'll I'll see you i mean like i I don't i don't know what you tell a child um that you're not it's so it's
1: so crazy because they she knew like i'm assuming it's a she i should not assume that but but your therapist because she knew you before they they took you on she Mm -hmm. knew your history they Mm -hmm. took you on and then you know, I don't want to make any, any judgments. I don't know them, but like, it just, it feels that it was just, it was too hard. You know, it was too much of an inconvenience. Maybe you weren't going to live up to their ideal. And so they don't want that, that mark on them or, or who knows, but yeah, it's just, it's, it's, it's so unbelievably hard to comprehend that move on their part. Like, Take us take us into, like, what what did that do to you, like, emotionally? Did that leave things on your identity? Like, how did you process through that?
0: Uh, so you, <clears throat> you hit it right on the, the nail on the head on, on what my thoughts were on how they're feeling, right? Um, because I'm not living up to this expectation that they have, right? Because I remember meeting some of their friends and, like, other family members. You know, they introduced me proudly as like, oh, this is our son, Darius, and, you know, like they, they seemed very proud, right, on the on the surface level. No one had any idea, you know, what I went through as a child. Um, but, you know, I was constantly portrayed as this person that I'm not, right, um, you know, constantly projected as like the future whatever in, in their lives, right. Um, and the fact that I wasn't living up to those expectations and that they had a very difficult time, because like I said, they weren't parents before and they were probably in their mid-40s, um, if I can recall correctly. Um, and so this is their first time being parents. And even though my previous therapist, she um, has been a therapist to many, many children over the, her her career, um, I think she was finding it the fact that you can't exactly just use your skill set as a therapist to be a parent, right? They're, they're, they're roles for specific situations, right? So you can't necessarily be a parent within a therapist setting, and you can't necessarily be a therapist at home and in your household. Um, so I think they were finding that very difficult on how to balance that. And again, coupled with the fact that I wasn't living up to this person they wanted me to be, um, I felt that they found it. Um, challenging to be in that situation with me. So I think they ultimately just uh, wanted to give me up and they never uh, fostered or they never took in any other children after that uh, from what I was told later on. Um, So for me at this point, I mean, now I've been rejected by my own birth parents and multiple families, uh, I start to close myself off. I don't want to express what I'm feeling to anyone else. Um, I don't have trust for anyone. I mean, I'm living in this house. and I'm like, all right, when when's my my social worker going to show up to take me to the next place, right? When, when Where's my next set of siblings? Where's the next school? Um, you know, I wasn't thinking that I was going to last long in this house. Um, and so that was kind of my initial thoughts. And again, this is fifth grade. I had just finished the first semester of fifth grade. Um, and because now the dynamic of the fact that I'm in a new family, but I am now the sibling that's the oldest, right? Among the siblings that I, I have, right? There's a four-year-old, there's a one-year-old, and, and some are something in between. Um, And so I'm expected to be the responsible sibling to take care of my other siblings while also going to school, while taking care of the house. Uh, my foster mother in this house, she uh, worked really long hours. I remember her leaving Uh, shortly after I would be uh, starting my day in school and then she wouldn't come home until about nine or 10 o'clock at night. Uh, So I was expected after I went to school, I would come home. Now I would get dinner ready for my siblings. I would feed them. I would shower them. I would clothe them, put them to bed, do my homework, clean the house, go to bed. And that was like expected. Fifth grade, right? I'm, I'm I'm 10 years old, 10 or 11 years old. I'm like, I I mean, I just moved here, and that's the expectation. Um, and like, I, I, I would mess up, right? I'm, I'm, I'm still human. I'm still a young kid. Maybe I didn't do the dishes one night, or I forgot to take out the trash, or I... I don't know. Just you, you name it, I probably did it. I, I'm in the wrong, apparently. Uh, so my uh, foster mother would verbally abuse me. She would yell at me in front of my siblings of you didn't do this right. You didn't do that right. You didn't pick this up after yourself or after your siblings, and I'm getting constantly berated. Uh, you know, every day that I'm living there, um, and I felt like I I just couldn't do anything right at this point. I I go to school and I'm getting picked on because I'm the new kid. Uh, I wore glasses at the time. I had like these very round uh, Harry Potter looking glasses. So I got called Harry Potter. Got called frog eyes. I mean, you name it, I was called it. Um, so I'm dealing with that at school, but no one knows what's going on in my household. So I'm, I'm just getting it from both ends where I just felt like I couldn't really have a place where I could just be accepted, be myself, be an actual child for once. Right. I, up to this point in my life, I've never had the experience of being a child. I was kind of forced out into the world and kind of forced to be an adult from a very young age dealing with emotions that i feel like no child should ever ever face in their life um i feel like a child should just be a child growing up and have the child emotions that they should have and express in a, in a very positive light um but i was you know challenged at a very young age uh, to have emotions and and go through these mental challenges um you know, that adults would face. And I I feel that many adults would probably struggle with the things that I've struggled with (sighs) this.
1: Well, I mean, your, your first attempted adopted parents couldn't, couldn't cope with. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I a hundred percent agree with what you're saying. So you've now to some degree, it sounds like accepted that your reality is maybe offensive Right. You've probably taken in some identity traits that are less than positive. It sounds like your life existence now is filled with what most people would describe as not a fun existence. You're you're going to school, which usually by the fifth grade, kids find out that they don't enjoy school that much, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And then you come home to work and then work and then work and then sleep. And you don't even have the benefit that most kids have of that, you know, that normal family feeling like like take us into like what is your life like at this point like how are you processing you're obviously emotionally guarded but but you can't i'm assuming life is not a bunch of roses at this point internally so
0: this this is probably one of the darkest or the darkest moments of my of my life uh to date Um, so fifth grade, specifically the second half of of my fifth grade year, um, you know, so I'm, I'm harboring in a lot of these emotions and like the past has shown whenever I do that, I tend to have outbursts and those outbursts would come when I'm getting berated of something I did wrong, um, getting yelled at, uh, she never physically abused me, but you know, I mean, verbally and mentally abusing me, uh, really gaslighting me. I would have an outburst to her. I would argue back. I would throw things at her. um, And I mean, she would, I guess, spank me. um, So I guess that was a form of physical abuse, but that was normal back then. Um, And after these outbursts, I had very destructive behavior to myself, right? Um, So I would quietly go back up to my room and I'd close the closet door and I would do random things to... Do self harm to myself um, in places that were unseen. So when I'm wearing my school uniform, uh, you know, the next day at school, no one could see what was happening. Um, but I, at that point, I just didn't feel I didn't belong at school. I didn't belong at home. Um, I didn't belong in this world. I didn't like myself. I hated looking at myself in the mirror. Um, I hated who I was. Uh, just because I, just, I just felt that. I, I was not, not enough. I mean, there's, there's something wrong with me if there's all these awful things that are happening in my life. And I mean, that it, this was just my normal at the, t- at the time. Um, but I, I just didn't want to go through, through this anymore. I just wanted the pain to stop. And I, I had no other way to make it to go away than for me to just not be in this world anymore so at 11 years old I had made the decision to myself that I would just end my life because it's just not because it was not worth it living anymore there's no reason for me to be here I had no purpose in life I mean there was just nothing for me to live for I mean my whole life at this point I just felt constant pain and constant turmoil. There's no stability in my life. No one believed in me. No one had good expectations for the outcome of my life. Um, and I, I just didn't want to do this anymore. It was too painful. I didn't know how to cope with it. I never opened up at therapy, so none of that was happening. So I, I took several attempts at taking my own life. And it wasn't until the last attempt... I had strung up a rope in my closet after a very bad argument with my foster mother. And I remember stepping onto the chair and putting the string around my neck and stepping off and the rope snapped. I collapsed to the ground. I remember I remember the world just turning black and I passed out. And I, I wake up some hours later and you know I am wondering to myself, you know, am I am I alive? You know, did I die? You know, where am I? What is happening? And you know, for some reason all of a sudden the thoughts kind of flooded into me of why, why am I doing this, right? You know, what am I, what am I doing here, you know, trying to take my own life? Why has it come to this decision? Um, you know, what, what reasons do I have, you know, to, to do this, right? Um, and during that thought process, all of a sudden, the thought of my brother comes to my mind, right? I told you, he was born uh, paralyzed from the neck down. So he couldn't talk, he couldn't speak, uh, eat on his own, uh, couldn't walk. And for some reason, he flashed into my mind and I, I broke down right there. Because here I am, right? A capable, physically, um, you know, somewhat mentally, emotionally, able to kind of live in this world um like a normal person and my own brother could not he could not do what i was doing he could not get up and walk to go get water he could not speak to you and express himself right all he could do is just move his eyes that's all he could physically do on his own and i am about to throw away my own life that i have this opportunity to live in this world over you know the trauma that i was facing Right. to me, despite what was happening, you know, at that point in time, you know, whether or not you're religious, to me, I think that life is very precious and, and it's a gift. And I was about to give that up because of what was I was facing in my life. And so because of that, I defined for myself at that point in time that my purpose in life was to live a life that my brother could not live because he was not able to do the things that I was doing. Uh, able to do you know he's not able to to go out and see the things that I was able to see Uh, so I told myself then that I would live a life that he was not able to Um, and that kind of gave me a newfound purpose uh, within my life to understand the pain that I was going through and that I've been through um, and to then realize that I should be the one to be able to define what it is that I want to do with the rest of my life at that time um you know i could not i knew i could not change what happened in the past right no matter how hard i tried obviously i could not change it but i knew that if i defined what my success looked like and what my future would look like then that, at least that would give me something to look forward to in life and that combination of thoughts and emotions came into that epiphany at that last moment i attempted to take my life
1: So DK, you, you made this connection at 10 years old, which to me is like, I'm just trying to wrap my head around this. Like, I mean, this, this connection between you having the chance at life again and, you know, your brother, like and and living for him in that purpose, like, it seems like the type of connection, maybe a 30 or 40 year old would make not, not a 10 year old. Like it, it just, it, it amazes me that you made that connection and And I want to make an assumption here and then you can, you know, say that I'm correct or not correct. But do you feel like by connecting that event to a purpose, like, do you feel that your life went from maybe being outside of your control to being within your control? What do you you think happened after making that connection?
0: Yeah, so I think, and at the time I probably didn't fully understand what was happening. Um, But later on, kind of reflecting back, uh, I felt that. Because I was able to make that jump of aligning my own life to a purpose that I defined for myself, allowed me to really kind of take control of what I wanted to do in the present moment. Um, and the fact that I felt that I had a lot more control on what I wanted to do for my future. Um, so I think day in and day out, it gave me a little bit more sense of purpose. Um, and it allowed me to, to actually say no to an. Uh, someone else was trying to lay an expectation on myself or a limitation on myself um, where I I would say, no, I want to do this, right? I want to be a chef or I want to be an astronaut or something. So I felt perfectly, perfectly okay to express the things that I wanted to do. And it felt okay with me not wanting to do something else that someone else wants for my own life. Um, So I think I was able to kind of align myself where I wanted to go
1: yeah it seems like kind of like that scene in the movie where somebody's getting beat up constantly and finally it's like hey enough is enough and then like it's like this alter ego comes out and then they like become this tough bad boy and then like they then are in control of the situation like did it feel like that in you at all or uh
0: I don't know if it necessarily felt quite like that. I mean, um, up up until this point, I still felt a lot of insecurity about uh, who I was um, and and what has happened and how to express that. Um, but I did feel that um, it was okay for me to have different opinions than other people on what I wanted to do for my for my own life. I still felt like like a quote unquote nerd, and, and you know, I had a lot of self insecurities because of like my physical appearance and, and my mental state. Um, but it I, at least at the end of the day, um, I felt that I could achieve anything else that I wanted to achieve just because in, in my mind, I knew I was destined for a higher uh, purpose and, and, you know, destined for, for a greater thing in life and that, you know, what I was going through in my current state was temporary, right? And I don't know how I thought that at such a young age, um, but I felt that everything I felt up to this point now was temporary and eventually, you know, this pain will go away and I'll be able to do different things in life.
2: Wow. Yeah, so I have a question for you. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm amazed at your ability to recollect everything that you're talking about because so much of this happened at such a young age. And you had mentioned towards the beginning that there was an experience that you had blacked out and and obviously i don't want to get into the details of that but that actually tends to be the case with people that go through such heavy trauma they tend to remove themselves from the equation essentially and the brain essentially shuts off um so just as a reference point i can't tell you anything that happened to me before the age of five um at all so i mean have you never had problem? have you always had this kind of clarity or have you done a ton of self-reflection in order to develop that
0: um yeah so that's an interesting question so i would say at the time it probably and especially like right in the moments you know things would feel very fuzzy or i would have no re- recollection at that ex exact time period um because of all the the pain that i was kind of being surrounded by um But because I was going through so much therapy, um, even though I wasn't opening up to my therapist up until this point, um, I did a lot of self-reflection on my own. I always reflected on, you know, how am I feeling? What am I, like, why am I feeling this, right? So I did a lot of reflection on, on, you know, my own inner emotions. And then I would kind of recollect the events that were happening around me. Um, So I constantly just developed this ability to kind of sense my own emotions and the emotions of other others around me, and then pick those up in my recollections of of my memories. Um, And so in doing this at this point, you know, nearly a decade, um, you know, I was able to kind of gain this ability where I could continually uh, recount um, the events that happened. And to the point where sometimes I can recount the smells that were happening, the sounds that I was hearing. Um, the emotions I was feeling, the emotions that was being portrayed to me. Um, and so just kind of developing this ability over time has helped me really be able to kind of dive back to even memories when I was like two years old. But a lot of those are really around very intense uh, emotions and, and uh, either that'd be pain, painful emotions or happy or, or whatnot. Um, those are the time periods that I feel I can really recount um, other areas of my life are kind of fuzzy.
2: Hmm. yeah that makes sense um so if you're open to this Mm -hmm. could you talk about the thought processes that you were having um so i mean obviously lots of people think about suicide everybody doesn't take the, the leap of attempting um so like when did you decide that you're going to do this in and what was your mental thought process validating that that was the right decision? If you're comfortable,
0: no, I'm comfortable sharing because I feel that these sort of conversations aren't ha- happening enough, um, and for someone to come out and share their own experience, I think is is needed, because um, you know we, we we don't know what's happening in people's lives, right? Um, like I said, for me, as a child, I had the bubbliest of personalities. I was very friendly. Um, but at the end of the day, I mean, you know, I, I self-harmed myself and I, I did not want to exist anymore. Um, and so one thing I do want to say is for people to really understand the words they're saying to people and the emotions they're portraying um, to others. Because uh, for those of us that have witnessed a lot of pain, we can pick up on the smallest of things. Um, And you don't have any idea the effect of your words and of your actions on someone else and what it could do uh, within their own minds. Because what people like me do, you replay that over and over and over. And at the end of the day, we don't blame you for what happened. We blame ourselves for what's happening. Um, And that really eats at us. And so for me at this time period, I'm harboring all these emotions that I felt since I was, you know, two years old was probably the earliest memory I have. I was telling Matt this the other day during our call. Um, It was later told to me that at two years old, my ribs were broken by my father for just the physical abuse I was getting at that young age. Um, It's on my medical records that are kind of locked away in, in the past of the fact that my ribs were broken. I had to go to a hospital to get my ribs repaired at two years old. So from that time period up until now, I'm fifth grade, you know, kind of, holding in all these emotions that i never really fully expressed um and feeling all this guilt and shame on myself right i didn't blame my parents for what happened i just felt that there was something somewhere in the world that i was destined to go through this abuse and that it was my fault that i received it and that i um was responsible and the one to blame to be rejected from several different foster homes and and not be accepted at school. And so these were kind of the emotions I'd play, the thoughts I'd play in my head over and over and over. Every single day, every single waking moment um and because I just felt this complete rejection of myself from others and I rejected myself, you know, I hated the sight of looking at myself in the mirror. Um and I hated the fact that I was feeling this way too. Um, and because up up until this point, I felt I had no true purpose um, for life. Um, it wasn't like a, a very immediate decision to want to end it, but it was a decision that happened over time where I felt, um, you know, I felt like I was not good enough. You know, I'm not really going to achieve anything great in life, um, you know, that I'm not really destined for anything more than the pain that I have received and that I don't deserve anything else other than that that pain that i've received um so i took those inward emotions and expressed it outward upon myself by just physically harming myself maybe i'd pinch myself maybe i'd cut myself maybe i would try to choke myself and and close off my airways um you know i would express the inner emotions i had by just physically um inflicting it upon myself because i felt that that was all i deserved and it wasn't until, you know, this kind of went on for a few weeks, for a few months, um, that I said, you know, why am I just only harming myself? Why, why do I not just live? Why, why am I even here on this planet? You know, was the heavens above just destining me to just go through this tum- turmoil with, with nothing to, to live for? So I just felt that I was just abandoned from everything. There's just no reason, rhyme or reason for me to be in this world. I mean, if my own birth parents did not want me in this world, then why am I here, right? And that that was, that was what ultimately led after several weeks and several months of this destructive behavior that I eventually um, made the decision to want to end my life. And that's kind of the, the thought process that culminated. So at least in my personal experience, it wasn't an immediate thought. But I think like for many others, it's, it's a gradual thing that happens over time, depending on our circumstances.
1: So you attempted to commit suicide and you had the rope broke and you were in Mm -hmm. the closet and then you fell to the floor unconscious and you were there for a period of time. And then were you still unconscious when your foster mom found you?
0: Yeah, so I remember getting woken up. Um my foster mother was like hysterical. She had no idea what was going on. I remember her opening the closet door um and she found me laying on the floor and you know she's shaking me awake and she's crying, she's breaking down because she has like no idea why I'm doing this, right? She probably understood that you know there was a lot of contention between us that you know we would argue because you know she had these expectations laid out for me that i'm the oldest sibling i should be responsible right um but she didn't know that the emotional and mental trauma she was delivering to me was adding to everything else that was happening in my life because up until this point she didn't really fully understand what i went through um i don't know how familiar you guys are with the foster care system Um, But they don't always fully disclose uh, what happens to a child uh, when you come to their house. They'll they'll give you some um, elements of of, um, things that have happened in their past, but they don't give you the full details, right? A lot of the records, depending on the circumstances, are closed and only open to the medical professionals or to the therapist or the social care worker. Um, So a lot of the families might not know everything unless that child opens up to them directly. Or they feel it's a specific need to know that that parent needs to have a complete understanding of everything before uh, that child enters their home. So it, the circumstances can vary depending uh, from state to state, home to home, and, and from circumstance to circumstance. Um, so at least in her her case, she did not have a full understanding of what, what, what I was going through. Um, she just understood that I had moved into foster care at four years old. And I had went to a couple of different foster homes uh, until I got to her Um, and so the fact that she saw me trying to take my own life she knew something was wrong Um, so I think she felt an immense uh, sense of guilt um, for what was happening Um, and I just remember waking up to her trying to hug me and she was crying Um, and from that point forward um, our relationship got a little better, um, because she understood that I was going through a, uh, very difficult, uh, mental state, um, which especially in that time period, no one really talks about suicide. No one really talks about depression and mental health. Um, and again, I'm fifth grade and this is like the early 2000s. So, I mean, this was not really mainstream, um, media and social media was not a thing back then. Um, so this was kind of very close hold. So only she knew um, that I was going through uh, suicidal depression and my therapist later, once I opened up to, to him, um, that I was kind of going through these, uh, emotional states.
2: Wow. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, I, I was not aware that they didn't give that information for foster children. And I, I feel like that's not a therapist of any kind, but that seems like it's negligence. Um, I have this specific question for you because mm-hmm. I, I could relate in in quite a few ways. So you mentioned you often buried your emotions, and typically when you're burying your emotions, they're they're going to come out in some way, in some capacity. Did did you ever um, find that the trauma kind of leaked out in ways? And I'll give you some examples from my previous or my previous life, my current life actually. Um, <laughs> um, so like, I had problems wetting the bed. Um, I had problem. I, had problems shitting my pants, um, for, for, for waste. And that's it. In, in a clear way, um, I, I couldn't speak correctly. I couldn't say my R's and things of that nature. Did anything come out for, for you in the same capacity or, or was it different in your case?
0: Uh, I would say there was probably some similarities when I was like very, very young. Um, so when I was in, I believe second or third grade. Um, I remember I developed this eating disorder where I would wake up in the morning and I would sit down to have breakfast before elementary school and I would have a couple bites of my cereal and then I was full. I just couldn't eat anymore. I just, you know, I would have two, maybe three spoonfuls of cereal and milk and and then I just could not eat. Um, And my family did not understand what was happening Um, and I also didn't understand, you know, why I was getting so full so quickly. Um, but it was later I found out it was probably linked to a, you know, my mental state, really just blocking a lot of my other cues in my body, uh, preventing me from just eating like a normal human, um, to the point where I was so malnourished that I was forced onto a, Ensure diet, right? You know those like Ensure like smoothie drinks, right? They taste super awful. Um and this is the early 2000s, so they didn't have like the greatest of flavors. I had like vanilla <laughs> and like chocolate, right? Um so I'd I'd rather sure. just take chalk and just shake that up in water and just drink that because it, it tasted awful. Um so I was instructed that you know every morning I would have to have like two of these um in order to restore some nutrients to my body just cuz I could not eat solid food and to add to the abuse that I was facing because my family had no idea why I was going through this, um, I, like I said, I would have like two or three bites of that cereal in the morning. right. And this is before I got on this diet uh, from the doctor, I would go to school, I'd come home and instead of giving me like normal dinner that everyone else was eating, they're like, Hey, remember this cereal that you didn't eat this morning? This is what, this is what your meal is. And it was been sitting out all day. It's soggy and, and the milk is probably, you know, probably not good anymore they would force me to eat it, eat it until in the point that I, I'd be throwing up there at the table because I just could not, I could not put food in my body. Um, so that severely affected me. This went on for about a year. I could not eat solid food. Um, you know, I was completely malnourished. nurse. In a third grade, uh, I probably weighed like 40, 45 pounds. I mean, I was, I was pretty small Ooh. for a third grader. Um, So eventually over time, and my body was able to acclimate and I was able to kind of restore my nutrition through these smoothie drinks. And I eventually had the appetite again to eat solid foods. Um, but that was one extreme case of where uh, I felt that my mental and emotional state prevented certain biological cues to happen in my body. Um, and then later on in life, um, I had this innate, uh, tantrums, right? I harbored in my emotions so much that I would just lash out to people. And I, I mean, I'm sure this is normal for anyone's circumstances if they're uh, kind of harboring their emotions, but um, I had a tendency to overreact to things very quickly. Um, I could not control my temper, um, you know, so I would lash out verbally, physically, you know, I would, I would throw things at people. Um, I was a pretty violent child when I got angry, um, but when I was able to keep things together then i was just you know living like any other child i mean wanting to eat candy to go to the park i mean I had all those same sort of wants and needs as a child um but a lot of the times my inability to kind of control my temper really came out uh just because of the fact that i couldn't I, because i bottled my emotions up and i didn't have a good outlet um to express it like i said i did try to pour myself into my studies to the point where I would get very competitive um, wanting to get the best grades um, because I felt that was just one way for me to kind of express uh, my emotions in a more positive way where it's like well I'm expected to go to school and do good at school so why not do the best at school that I could um, get the best grades Um, and so those were kind of unhealthy ways that I really expressed my emotions I would say
2: yeah wow um so i mean this is a word i learned recently but interoception is like the ability to feel inward emotion or not emotion it's more like hunger and thirst and things of that nature um i think this is often linked to trauma and in particular bipolar people are really bad at sensing hunger and things of that nature when they're in a state of mania or something like that um But anyways, where I was going with this is you mentioned that you dove into school and you were super competitive there. Um, Mm -hmm. I could relate to that. And it's kind of like in a a way to escape, or at least um, for me, I had reading. I was an obsessive reader. Um, Also video games, really anything that would take me out of life. Um, Escapism was something I really heavily leaned into. Um, Do you think that that's what your body was doing or your mind was doing rather was was going into school to escape or, or were there any other activities that were kind of on a similar line
0: uh so other than basketball uh you kind of i kind of relate to you on, on on an aspect with reading um i was very very um motivated by picking up a book and just burying myself in it for hours and I would just kind of escape into that world and a lot of time growing up uh, a lot of my favorite books were around fantasy um so actually at that age I think Harry Potter was just coming out um and so I was really ingrained into reading I would pick up the book and I wouldn't put it down until I finish it right so I'm reading like these very thick hundred several hundred page books um you know as a third grader Um, and, and just burying myself in the stories and kind of escaping into that world, um, where I felt I could become that character, right. And kind of escape the, the own, my own, I guess, main character in this world. Right. So, um, I, I definitely related to the fact of just burying myself in a book and just escaping into a, into a different world. Um, at the younger ages, I wasn't too heavily into video games and that was more so based on the resources that I had in those different foster homes. Uh, but as I got older into some of the other homes that had it, then I, I also buried myself into video games.
1: So you are dealing with the aftermath of the, of the suicide attempt. Your foster mom's hysterical, like how, how does that play out? Like, what, what, what goes on from there?
0: Yeah, so after um, having that experience with her, uh, she sort of realized that on the home front, I probably need help, right? I mean, I'm, I'm 10, 11 years old, still going to school and expected to take care of the house and, and take care of my other siblings. Um, so she tried to find ways to make it a little bit more easier on myself, right? Because I, you know, I'm, I'm such... A young child, right still trying to figure his way out in the world uh so in the evenings she would have one of her other family members come come over to the house, either stay with us for the evening until you know my foster mother got home, or they would pick us up and take take us to their house in a different part of the island, and then we would stay there until uh, the late evening and then we would get picked up, so that really helped because I wasn't having to focus on the fact that I would have to make dinner and you know make sure that they're getting ready for bed. So now I could focus on what I need to do in order to prepare for the next day of school, right? I could just focus on coming home in the evening. Um, you know, maybe I'd go play basketball in the park for a little bit and then I could do my homework and then, you know, help the the family get the other siblings ready for bed, right? And they also had their own um children to take care of too. So, um that definitely helps because not all the onus is on me to do everything. Um, So I felt that I could lean on other like adults, actual adults to help take care of the children in the house. Um, So that was helpful. And then a lot of our conversations going forward were a little bit more um, collaborative, I would say, Um, you know, she actually would listen to what I'm saying instead of just saying like, Oh, it's this way or it's this way because I said it is like, because I'm the parent, right. A lot of time, uh, parents will lash out at their children and, and say things like that. They don't understand um, the impact they're having on, on a child to not want to express themselves to them anymore. Um, so I think having the understanding of what I was going through, then she started to um, be less, um, I guess, less demanding of me, and and more understanding of what I was going through, and and talking in a tone that's that's. Uh, a little bit more endearing um i mean she was still kind of stern with with certain things right she still had expectations for me uh you know to do well in school and, and whatnot and keep up with everyone else in class um but she was understanding if i was struggling with other things that were kind of going on in life um so that was helpful and then for me on a personal level um up until this point like i said i would go to these therapy sessions and i wouldn't fully open up right maybe i would tell them some aspects of what, what I was feeling or what was going on in my life. um. But I never just like, like here I am on camera, I right? fully just pour myself out, right. Speaking from the heart. I never really did that in therapy up until that point. But once I made the decision that, you know, I, I don't want to take my life anymore and, you know, I want to live for the higher purpose and live for what I define as success in my life. I said, you know, my first step is dealing with what's going on inside of me. So I started to go to my therapy sessions and I started to open up to my therapist on, you know, what I was feeling over the past, uh, few years. And, uh, you know, where I wanted to get in life and and what I needed to do in order to get there first, you know, emotionally, spiritually, physically, um, mentally in order to kind of accept what happened in the past. Right. I had to learn that tough lesson, Accept. um, that I was not to blame for everything that happens, right? I mean this is these are tough lessons to learn at, at you know fifth grade. Um and so once I started to um deal with that in the therapy sessions, you know, I, I felt that started to take off a huge burden for my life, right? Um I started to lash out less right i started to be able to express my anger in more positive ways like it's not that it was frowned upon to feel anger um but to kind of redirect that energy to something else right um so if i needed to go into my own room close the door and punch a pillow for a little bit and was completely fine but at least i'm not punching the walls or punching myself or punching other people Um, so my therapist really helped me to kind of learn the emotions i was feeling and just feel it in that moment and then express it in a more positive way uh so i mean it took years and years uh of going through these sessions for me to have much better control of my my emotions or to the point that i'm very hyper aware of of how i'm feeling and how the feelings i have affects the people around me um so not to say i'm perfect at 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 my emotions nowadays but um, you know, it's definitely been a work in progress over uh, a decade and a half for sure.
2: Wow. Yeah. So when you say that you didn't open up to your therapist, um, I'm guessing this is the case because I could relate to you on that level. Do you feel like you didn't open up to your therapist because of your insecurities and probably – um the internal thought process that you know what you were going to say was not going to be accepted it was not going to be valid it was not going to be okay
0: yeah i mean you express everything i mean i think because you understand the, the wavelength right um and i exactly felt that i mean i felt Everything I'm about to say, I'm going to get scrutinized. I'm going to get judged. I feared everything that my therapist wrote down on his piece of paper, even if you might have not even been taking notes on what I'm saying. Um, But a lot of the insecurity I felt because in my eyes, I was not like a normal person. Um, I just had a fear of expressing that and feeling vulnerable, I think was probably the biggest emotion that I felt Um, that if I were to kind of expose myself in that way, um, I just don't know how to deal with that emotion of vulnerability and uh, with all the insecurities <clears throat> that I felt uh, throughout my life. Um, so I think that was probably the biggest barrier to me um, and the feeling of being accepted, right? If I'm about to share like who I am to someone and, and everything I'm feeling and thinking, at the end of the day, I think any human would want to feel that they're accepted, right? Um, and up to this point in my life, I did not feel accepted. I mean, I don't think anyone accepted me for who I was, or, or so I thought. Maybe there was some people, um, but to my mind, that's all I felt was uh, very closed off from the world. Um, and so throughout these sessions, I mean, they would poke and prod at me in different ways, right? Uh, trying to open up to a child, playing games with them and, and telling jokes and whatnot. Um, but I just kept, kept my ground and I just felt that I could not trust them. Um, and it's no fault on them, but it's just kind of how I guarded myself from protecting the vulnerability I felt.
1: Wow. So going into that a little bit further, so you're still obviously very guarded and, you know, working through that process, I guess I just want to continue a little bit more on the storyline, and then I want to come back and spend some time here. So you're with the foster mom, but that's not your final stop as nope. a kid. So tell us, tell us what comes after.
0: Yep. Uh, so I'm finishing up <clears throat> fifth grade um, in, in that school that I was, I was going to. So at this, at this point, you know, I'm, I'm doing a little bit better in school. Um, emotionally wise, like, uh, my mentality is, is a lot more positive. Um, and I'm getting along more with the students uh, in my classes to the point that I started to make some friends that would have me over to their houses. Um, and you know, I'd get invited to go out to the park and play basketball with them. Um, I was in like a after school program. Uh, where, you know, they would have students come over, you could do your homework, you could play games or, or whatnot. So in, in that program, I also started to make friends with, with the other students that had to stay later at their school uh, before going home. Um, so the rest of my fifth grade year turned out to be a little better. Um, and it was probably later into that summer of that year, this is probably about 2006, um, I was told by my therapist that, hey, Um, we didn't tell you this before, but, you know, myself and your foster mother from your second home that you went to, um, went into legal court battles so that she could take you back into her home and so that she could adopt you. And this is the home where I told you that after a year of living there, I really got to, uh, really bond with the siblings that I had there, bond with the the parents that were taking care of us. Um, and you know, throughout this entire time when I was going through this turmoil of being ripped out to be adopted by, you know, my previous uh, therapists and, and the emotional trauma I was going through in the rest of fifth grade, that in the background, you know, my current therapist and my previous foster mother, you know, went through all this time to try to bring me back and bring me to a stable home because he, for some reason, um, saw something in me that I did not, right? He saw that you know, this is a child who has such a bright future ahead of him uh, that uh, all he needs is a stable environment, you know, a place where he feels wanted, accepted, loved, cared for, and and I see that he could probably very very well thrive in this life, and that what he's missing right now is is that safe environment where he feels accepted, um, and so they went through in order because my foster, or my previous foster mother, she had. Um, five what's called special needs kids, and and these are, are kids in the foster care system that have gone through some serious trauma, um, and typically, depending on the state, they limit the amount they could have in one household, just you know because of of uh mm, I, I don't know there, there there's various reasons that they limit the the amount in 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 households, um so they went to court so they could get the role changed for her just be- based on her ability to be able to take care of us and they ended up winning the court case so they were picking me up from this this household and i got moved back in with them with the siblings that i remembered from years and years ago um and they had started the process of paperwork in order to adopt me right and so like i said i had just finished fifth grade i'm about to step into sixth grade um in in this this previous household that i lived in so if i kind of recap because it might sound confusing uh so at four years old i had entered foster care right so i went from my parents house to now my first foster home in about third grade i went to a second foster home this is the home i'm about to I get adopted to, I get taken away from a previous therapist to supposed to be adopted to them. Um, That doesn't work out right after like five months or so. So I get moved to a fourth foster home, which is my fifth home. And mind you, I'm about 10 years older or so at this point. And this is my uh, fourth elementary school at this point as well. Um, And then I get taken back into the second uh, foster home. Right, because this is the family that I bonded with and this is the family that wants to adopt me. Um, so now I'm coming back to this house, All right, and this is after the time period where I accepted uh, the past of what happened to me and that I knew I wanted to live uh, for a better future in my life. And so things started to feel like they were kind of turning around for me because now I'm being accepted by a family. People went and fought for me because they wanted me to live with them, Right. Um, and that's, I think a different feeling, uh, for a child where, uh, I would say like a natural born child, right? Because you're born into your household, um, and you're raised by the parents that gave birth to you. Right. Um, but the fact that I'm already 11 years old at this point, understanding the the turmoil that I had in my own, uh, life, and they wanted me to live with them and be part of their family. And to me, that that was like the most powerful thing uh, in my life up and in, up into this point. Um, and because now I had this mental shift in and who I saw myself as, right? Like my identity started to change. And now my physical life, I felt, was also changing in a better direction. Um, and so I remember starting off my sixth grade year, now starting my fifth Uh, elementary school right before the before the age of 12 um and i didn't have a lot of the struggles that i had before because at this point i have a family that wants that wants me um that accepts me for who i am and uh you know supports the decisions that i want to make in life um and so even though i felt that again i was the new student at school um i just felt that i could just be another student another sixth grader there as if i was just like anyone else um and it, it was probably a year later in 7th grade i remember going up to one of my teachers and i said hey i'm going to miss school tomorrow and she's like why are you missing school and i said i'm going to get adopted um i mean her her jaw dropped to the ground she had no idea i mean like it's not a common thing like here you, here you have a 12-year-old coming up to you in class and saying, hey, I'm going to go get adopted tomorrow. Um, because, of course, the school is not going to understand um, a child's background, right? I mean, my therapist is not going to go tell the school that, oh, this child, blah, 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 right? I mean, I, at that to them, I'm just a name on a paper. I'm a seventh grader, and, you know, I'm attending this uh, intermediate school. Um, so I remember that day where I told my, uh, my class, uh, some of my classmates that hey, um, I'm gonna miss class tomorrow, so please, you know, let me know what's going on. Um, I'm gonna go get adopted and, and I'll see you guys the next day after that. Um and a lot of my classmates had a lot of questions for me. They're like, What does adoption mean? Like, what are you talking about? Um, and so I just remember at that point just slowly kind of exposing myself to people because I started to kind of accept what has happened. Um, and, I, and I kind of identified um, with who, who I was in the past, and and the fact that at that point I've I've kind of grown a lot within those two years. Um, but the day I got adopted, um, aside from marrying my current wife, is probably the happiest moment of my life. I wow. mean, here here I have a family of my own, I have siblings of my own, and I can live in a house that accepts me for who I am, and and that's like the that's the only thing I wanted in life at that point. I just wanted to feel safe. I wanted to feel accepted, and I wanted to feel that you know I don't have to worry about like the household that I live in, and for the actions that I'm taking, and you know they never blamed me for what happened in the past. You know they understood, and they they were right down in the trenches with me and trying to help me, um, you know, turn my life around. And I mean that's just all I wanted in my life. That's all I I sought for. Uh, so the day I remember sitting in my therapist's office. We're signing the papers for me to get adopted. I, I will say it's probably the happiest day of my life.
1: And the story you might say is, is history at that point, right? I mean, at that point you, you feel loved, you feel connected. You start, not that it became easy. You still have all of the things to work through, but you start excelling in school. You go to high school, you go to college at Purdue, you get a degree. In electrical engineering, is is that right? Did I get that uh, right?
0: Uh, mechan- <clears throat> mechanical engineering. Mechanical
1: engineering. A very, very mm-hmm. great school, a great degree. Go into the military, have a great military, uh, are still in the military, correct? Or, or at least working in yep. in government. And uh,
0: Yep, still active duty.
1: Investing in real estate. You own over a million dollars in commercial real estate. It's just astounding. And so, I mean, it's inspiring. It's, you know, I've been trying to hold my stuff together as we've gone on this journey together today. Can you give the audience a glimpse into the lessons that you've learned along the way? And you were giving some glimpses along the way, but I know you've Mm -hmm. compiled because of the amount of self-study and self-work that you did to get through these challenges. Can you give our audience a glimpse of, of some of the mindsets you developed that have, have helped
0: you. Yes. I would say one of the biggest lessons that I've learned, I've kind of touched on it in a, a, a detailed recount of what I was going through in fifth grade. Uh, But the biggest lesson I learned was your life is meaningful. Your life is precious. Your life matters, right? Regardless of what other people say about you and your life and what you're capable of, your life matters because you are here on this earth, right? And so for for that reason alone, your life matters. Um, and so once I had that realization, um, I had no reasons in my life after that to ever wanna take my life again, right? Regardless of how hard life would knock me down, I never wanted to get to that point where I felt that taking my life was the answer. Um, so that's probably the biggest life lesson I've, I've ever learned up into this point um, was that your life matters, your life is important it's precious, it's a gift. Um, And so to caveat on top of that, I kind of touched on this earlier. um, And this is more important in this specific time period of the year, right? We're going into the holiday time period. And a lot of the time, this is the most difficult time period of the year. Um, I remember going through celebrating Thanksgiving and what am I supposed to be grateful for? I don't have a family, right? My one brother is living somewhere that I didn't know at that point or my older brother. Um he was paralyzed like yeah, i I feel very powerless to be able to help him. I was rejected from so many families, my own birth parents right abused me um so I had the hardest time period during this holiday season to feel grateful to celebrate right um but again, because I had this ability to kind of portray myself as a very bubbly and happy kid um others did not know what I was going through. So if people made certain comments at me not understanding that, that hurts. Because at the end of the day, we should be very mindful of what we're saying to people and more importantly, how we act to them and around them. Um, And you never know the words and the actions you take could end someone's life, right? Because you don't know what they're going through. So that's my other uh, lesson that is related to this is You know, reach out to your other uh, friends and family members and coworkers or neighbors and whatnot, and just give a warm hello, give them a greeting, um, because you never know what people are going through. Um, People may show you one character and and there's something else going in the background. Um, So at the end of the day, I think we as humans just want to feel that we're heard and that we're accepted for who we are.
2: Um, That is um, such a powerful and important statement. Um, I think most people, maybe not most people, but almost all people that have struggled with a mental illness or trauma of some kind, um, they're great actors in a way. Like you said, they're, you were bubbly. Um, most people probably perceived you to be a very happy child that were not aware of your circumstances, but that was a coping mechanism, right? So you, mm-hmm. especially when you're dealing with such deep insecurities, like you just show the world what you think that they want to see um so i mean it's such a powerful such a powerful point because you know i've known several people that have actually successfully committed suicide and you know when when you find out it's like wow never would have thought that guy had any problems at all and i think that is often the case because Mm -hmm. yeah we're good actors
1: you mentioned in our pre-call a number of statements that I thought were very powerful and so I know there were more um and so so feel free to to expand on this even further but you you had made the statement Mm -hmm. it's not your fault you had made the statement dare to dream you had made the these statements that that became identity or rallying Christ for you you're not a statistic can you can you go into some of those and the power that those have had in your life
0: yeah, I can definitely delve into them. I don't have my notes pulled up into me like the, the other day. So this is kind of speaking from the heart. Yeah. Um. So uh, another big lesson that I learned that you kind of touched on here was uh, it's not your fault, right? So the the pain that's kind of dealt to you, and especially for me at, at a very young age, a lot of the time I blamed myself for what was happening. Um, but the lesson that my therapist tried to get through me for, for many years was, hey, Darius, this is, this is not your fault, right? This is the choice that someone else has made to inflict this pain on you. But at, at the end of the day, you're not the one to blame for this. So understanding that the pain you're going through, you have to accept what has happened and you have to be able to kind of work through that and, and deflect it in a, in a more positive way, kind of use that, um, the, the pain and the strength that you've gained from that and, and kind of work you know, to uh, overcome uh, your, your pain and, and the past that has happened. But at the end of the day, you are not the one to blame. Uh, so once I understood that and really felt it within me, um, then I, I really felt that I was able to kind of change the trajectory of my life um, and to dive on to another lesson that I learned, right? So once I kind of formulated and understood and really lived the meaning of you are not to blame, you know, I started to uh, live the, or, or really to understand the, um, you know, you, you're not a statistic, right? So up until this point, I, I was told that, uh, you know, foster children, right? I mean, it, the statistics show that the majority of us end up doing drugs. We end up going to prison. We end up doing, you know, getting into really um, uh, violence and, and gangs um, or or end up you know dead um just because of the destructive behavior that has happened to us that we may have a tendency to inflict that upon others or ourselves um and it's a very sad statistic um but if you reduce us to such numbers right at the end of the day we're we're just other people too right um so i just don't like the fact that we get compared to certain statistics and that puts a limitation on us to be able to live certain lives that we want to live for ourselves right so if i said one day that i wanted to be uh, i remember i think i said this in like fourth grade i wanted to be an inventor um and i got told you know by my my uh foster family that i lived with at the time and and you know other teachers and people saying like you you want to be an inventor you can't do that i mean you know, you're just going to be like any other troublemaking kid because at the time I was kind of destructive in classrooms, right? I would get sent to the principal's office. Um, I would, you know, destroy the classroom, you know, after arguing and whatnot. Um, so in their eyes, you know, I'm just this troublemaking kid that's just going to continue to do that for the rest of their life. Um, but at the end of the day, um, you know, you can't just reduce someone to statistics, Um And so that was uh, kind of a hard pill to swallow over time to really accept the fact that you know we we are at the end of the day you know just someone else in the world that is trying to you know live up to what we want to be able to do and not be reduced uh, to just statistics and to be reduced by someone else's limitations and beliefs on what we're able to accomplish in life.
1: So powerful. And that's the one that stuck with me because I mean, all of these are so applicable to people that maybe haven't experienced that same trauma, but obviously super helpful for those that have, but you are not a uh, statistic. That has been powerful for me because it made me reflect back on when I got married and I was 20, my wife was 21. So we were both very, very young. And the premarital counseling that we got was so valuable. And one of the things though that I thought was rather interesting is, is that the pastor read us, Hey, just need you to know, not encouraging you not to get married, but just need you to know that 95% of people that get married this young, don't make it. And, you know, so it caused us like a 10 second pause. And then of course we, we decided to get married and I'm so glad we did, you know, we're now almost 15 years at this point. And so it goes to show like, I mean, sometimes in life, looking at the numbers can be helpful, but when it comes to our ambitions our drives who we are i think that could be very dangerous um and so i'm Mm -hmm. i'm crazy glad that you brought that up so i've got i've got a heavier question that's coming to mind uh feel free not to answer Mm it Uh, but it's very dear to me as well because i have a number of people that have either committed suicide or have been close um let's say and um one of the things that that I find interesting is the psychology and the thoughts that happened right before. And you've gone into that a little bit, but when the rope broke and then you came to, were you happy, um, that, that it didn't go through at that moment? Like, and were you, you were not aware that the suicide attempt failed till you woke up. Correct. Is
0: that accurate? Yeah, I, I was not aware. Yeah, that's that's correct. So when you woke up,
1: was it almost an immediate thing that you came to the conclusion and the tie to your brother, or was there a period of time that you had to wrestle with the fact that the suicide attempt failed?
0: Yeah, I was definitely struggling with the fact that I mean, up until this point, that's that's all I wanted, right? I didn't I didn't really want to be on this planet in, in anymore. I didn't want to live this life I was living Um, so it took some time for me to cope with the fact that I'm still here. I'm still breathing, right? I'm still alive. Um, and so I, I struggled with it at first and the fact that, you know, know, why, why did it fail? Like, why am I still here? Um, and then, you know, over, over the course of the next uh, few minutes is when I really started delving down on the why, you know, was I feeling this way? Um, where I came to the conclusion that ultimately I didn't want to end my life. Right. And ultimately um, I knew that I wanted to live for a, a higher purpose. Right. Um, and not live with the pain that I was feeling at that, at that moment. Um, and so, yeah, I would say it was, it was a mix of emotions. So I was definitely very confused and very dazed as to what was happening. Um, and you know, it took time for me to kind of come to and, and really think through everything that I was feeling and really experience my emotions um, in such a vulnerable way to myself, really accepting the fact that I was having these, these emotions. Because even then, not only the fact that I was closing myself off from other people, but I closed myself off from myself within, right? I wouldn't really allow myself to to feel my emotions for how raw that they were. Um, So at this moment, that's when I felt everything, where on the surface level, uh, yes, I wanted to end the pain, end the suffering, and end my life. But on the deeper emotions, once I really got to kind of delve uh, down into into why I was feeling these, I knew I did not want want to end my life.
1: Hmm. So – If I could take us down a little bit of a thought path here. So I had watched a year or two ago, probably I'd watched a video, maybe on YouTube, maybe on TV, I can't quite remember. And it was a guy that tried to commit suicide by jumping off the bridge in San Francisco and the suicide attempt failed crazily because I think it was something like he was stung by jellyfish or, or there was some sort of sea life that came in and intercessed for him and it was able to get him to shore and he survived. And the thing that absolutely shocked me um, about, like not shocked me, that's probably not the right word, but the thing that was so impactful, I guess you could say was the second after he jumped, before he had hit the water, he was like, I made a mistake. And like, what a horrific feeling, right? To basically take yourself out of contention. You're at, you pass the point of no return. And then you realize, I don't want to do this. Um, Mm -hmm. and you, your scenario seemed a little bit different. Like you were pretty set on it. And then even after it failed, you you had to wrestle with it. But nonetheless, you and this guy came to the same conclusion that you're much happier alive. You're much more fulfilled. Like you're very glad now that you're alive. So if, if someone is in the throes of it right now, they're, they're wanting to commit suicide. What sort of advice what sort of thought process can you give to them from someone who's truly been there?
0: This leads me to probably the next most powerful um, life lesson I've learned, right? And again, this is all before I'm the age of 12, probably 10 years old at this point, um, was that it's okay to ask for help. It's okay to reach out. It's okay to be vulnerable and say, hey, I need help, right? Whether you're physically saying the words, I need help, or you're expressing it in a way. um, But the fact that, you should be okay reaching out and understanding that you can't do everything in, in your life, right? That it's okay to, you know, you know, maybe you're working on a, a difficult project or something and you're not able to accomplish it on your own. Ask the professor for help, ask other students for help. But especially when it comes to your own uh, physical well being, your mental health, right? Your spiritual health, your emotional health, it is okay to raise your hands up. And talk to someone that you trust and say, I need help. I can't deal with this on my own. You know, I'm going through these, these very this struggling time, right? You don't even have to give them all the details at that point. Um, but just reach out for help. Um, I, I would say that was that's probably the biggest lesson I learned. And the realization I had after I tried to take my life. Right? Had I tried to reach out for help earlier or had I actually used my therapy sessions for what they were designed for? Maybe I would not have gotten to the point that I that it did. Um, it, it's really dangerous in the sense where it, it's very common for us to feel exposed and want to close ourselves off, where it could lead to a lot of that destructive behavior. Um, so I would say the the biggest advice would be to reach out for help and know it's okay. And for those in the receiving end, be receptive of it, be a listening ear. And get them the professional help that's needed to help someone through that situation.
1: Wow. Um, so now that you're on the other side, married, dare I say, extremely happy, successful, self-aware, like all of these amazing attributes. What What is the DK vision for the next, not only 12 to 18 months, but for the rest of your life?
0: That is man that's a a pretty wild question I think that yeah I felt I feel very privileged to be able to think about right because at the time I just felt like my life was going nowhere um, I will touch on one more lesson and then I'll kind of delve into what my next year and plus looks like um, so the last lesson I'll, I'll probably um, give is the fact that, understanding the pain that you've gone through right whether someone inflicted it upon you or or what have have you whatever happened in your life um that you know we should not be harboring hatred in our hearts and that we should allow forgiveness to happen um and i don't say this in the sense to be biblical or anything like that but truly in the sense that uh, you can't live your life holding hatred in your heart in your minds in your soul Uh, because I did this for many years from the time I was, from the first memory I had growing up, uh, until about high school. I mean, this is well after I was already uh, adopted. Um, this is well after I was kind of turning my life around, but at that time I never forgave my parents for what happened, right? I still hated them, uh, for everything that happened to me. Um, even though I, at that point had learned to not blame myself and kind of move on from my past, but I still, uh, hated what happened, um. And one of the days that I was in my, my therapy session with my, my therapist, who at this point, I knew him for over a decade. Um, and I said the words to him, right? He showed me a photo of my parents. And I said, I forgive them. I forgive them for what has happened to me. Um, and I forgive them for, for what was done. And I don't I don't hate them anymore. And I can move on, right? I know that I was able to provide forgiveness and, you know, I I will never forget what happens, but I don't have to look back on those memories, uh, with hatred for it. I look on it as if I'm kind of a third person kind of observing the situation, right. Um, different perspective from how I used to kind of reflect on that time period. Um, so I say this and it aligns to the, the rest of my life because being able to have that forgiveness has allowed me to lift that burden off of my shoulders and now i can look at the rest of my life right the rest of my future uh with such an open open mind and and open eyes and and open arms in order to kind of um accept the decisions that i make and, and can work towards uh so up until this point like you said i i um you know had the fortunate uh opportunity to go to college right uh it's a very um rare uh going back to statistics uh for someone of foster youth to graduate from college. It's about three percent uh for, for those of us to to even attend a university and graduate. Um and I made the decision in high school that because of the life that I led uh growing up and and uh, the eventual help that I got that I wanted to dedicate my life to serve others in my community. Uh so I made a decision in high school that I wanted to uh, serve in the military, um, initially I was going to enlist, um, but I later found out there were scholarships that were, um, available for you to apply and attend college and then serve, uh, a follow on military career. Uh, so I ultimately, uh, got accepted for the Navy C scholarship, uh, attended Purdue university and graduated with a degree in mechanical engineering, and then went on to serve on nuclear submarines, uh, in the Navy. Um, after going through about two years of training for that, uh, then I was stationed in Hawaii for about three and a half years in the submarine, moved here to Virginia, and now I work a, uh, more of an office job. I'm still active duty in the Navy, but I have a very different role than I, than I had on the submarine. So now I'm more of a like a project manager, and I'm, I'm the chief of the systems engineering division for one of the offices I work in. And so my thought process when I was leaving my submarine tour to come here to DC uh, was what can I do with the time that I have now to set my family up uh, towards financial freedom, financial independence, and for us to be able to, to achieve fire, right? Financial independence, retire early um, so that I could then use that time afforded to me because of the financial stability um, you know, to work on other goals I had in my life um, to serve the surrounding community. Um, and so that led me to real estate and you, you briefly heard that, you know, I had sold my first property and I I bought a commercial building and I'm trying to build my, my portfolio. Uh, so for me, my goal in the next, I'm going to kind of jump out a little bit further than 12 months. Uh, but for, for my wife and I, our goal is to retire in the next five years. And when I say retire, I mean, have enough passive income to allow us to step away from our day jobs and be able to work on other projects in our life that we're uh, very, very passionate about. Um, And so for me, given the background that I have in mechanical engineering and nuclear engineering, um, and the fact that growing up, I was not very good at math and science. um, It was very highly suggested and recommended uh, in going for the Navy R2C scholarship that I choose a degree in the STEM field, where originally I wanted to be a psychologist and and uh, or go into psychology uh, to be a therapist, right because my therapist gave so much back to my life that i you know I felt i I could never repay him, but a way that I could do that is to help others um, that have gone through the, that kind of pain and so originally, I wanted to be a therapist, but my path kind of changed, and I went down the path of mechanical engineering and served in the military um so what I want to do is after building the financial freedom to allow me to walk away from my day job is to work either um, at a technology company or for my own company working on, you know, big world problems, right? Uh, Common problems that we have around the world around, you know, renewable energy, you know, water sustainability, energy conservation, kind of tackle these big problems. So that way, you know, we can kind of work as a, a community around the world, um, to to help solve these, these larger challenges in life. Um, And at the same time, I also want to work on helping outreach to the other foster youth community, right? Those of us that have um, gone through foster care and are are older adults now, or those of us that are still in foster care and and suffering through a lot of the, you know, similar or or different challenges that we face um, and be able to create a community for us to kind of talk and share our stories and, and kind of support one another, um, so that we as a community can each individually build towards our own dreams and goals. Um, and so ultimately I plan to be stepping out of the Navy in the next two years, so in 2024. Um, and so my goal between now and then is to build up enough passive income through real estate uh, in order to you know, have a smooth transition from my military career to uh, being a full-time entrepreneur Um, to then go work on these other passions that I have in my life.
1: Absolutely incredible. DK, Darius, thank you so much. You have given us an unbelievable gift, not only the hours and hours of your time, but just being vulnerable, being open, Guys, if you are listening to this episode and you are having any of these negative thought patterns that might lead you anywhere near ending your life, please take action on the steps that Darius is talking about. Seek help. Know that it's not your fault. Know that you're not a statistic. Dare to dream, which is something he didn't talk about. We talked about in the pre-call, right? Create this vision for your life. Get help so that you can live. I mean, think... Look at Darius. He was there. He was on the brink of ending it. But because it didn't work, he's now going to be financially free. He's going to impact the world. He's going to come up with solutions. He's, he's married. He has a life of joy. So please take action in seeking the help that you need. Do so right away. We normally say seven days. In this case, don't take seven days. Don't even take seven minutes. Get the help you need right now so that you can move away from the difficulty that you're experiencing. Now you can get out of the pain. You can get into a place where you can begin healing and you can
2: begin moving your life forward. So to those of you out there seeking freedom, your life is valuable. You can overcome anything with the right mindset. If anybody has proven that it is DK right here. Yes, we say do something in seven days, typically on the outro. I I give you this as a assignment to end this very emotional call. Um, Somebody that you know might need your assistance right now. So so reach out to somebody. Just reach out to one person that you haven't spoken to in a little bit and tell them that you love and care for them because that might make the difference. So thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you on the next one.